be still and know that I am God. Wonder this morning, when was the last time that you were still? And not just still, but still and quiet in the presence of God. Still and quiet in the presence of God long enough to hear God speak. It's this amazing dichotomy that you see in the video straight out of Psalm 46 that you just heard. All this destruction and chaos and noise. And at the very end of Psalm 46, we hear this. Let's read it together nice and loud up on the screen. God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear. Be still and know that I am God. Wherever you're at today, right in the middle of the conflict and the chaos of our world, God is there. Where is God in the midst of all that? He's right in the middle of it. Not intimidated, not absent, but present, offering hope. And he says to you this morning, do not fear. Sometimes I like to think about when I'm up here preaching and all of a sudden just in from the back doors, just Jesus walks in right down the middle aisle there uh, with his mask on, socially distancing from all of you. And Jesus walks down and he comes and he looks at you. He sits down next to you. He turns and he puts his arm around you and he looks at you with those eyes, you know, those eyes that can see right through you, those eyes that can see past the, the walls and the masks and the facades that we put up. And he looks right at you and he says, do not fear. Do not fear. How does that sit with you? What, what sort of does that bring out in you? Is that comforting for you? Is that challenging for you and where you're at today? Do not fear in the midst of all that's going on. In fact, we're continuing a sermon series today. It's, I'm excited about it. It's called Jesus Didn't Say That. Jesus didn't say that. We're addressing some of the, the sayings or quotes that are often misquoted to Jesus, things that he never said. And our misquote from Jesus today, if you go ahead and go to the next slide, our misquote from Jesus today is this, you'll never have tough times. Well, I don't think that I need to convince you of that today. 2020 has pretty much written the sermon on that. Amen? So I don't need to convince you of that today. But a lot of people are convinced is that Jesus said that. That God's word says that, that that's a theme that we see throughout scripture, is that just because you're connected with Jesus, all of a sudden all the storms go away. I don't know about any of you, but maybe you think back when you first uh, came to faith or you're contemplating putting your faith in Jesus, you're exploring that and you still have some doubts. Maybe for some of you, when you thought back to when you first became a Christian, you first decided to get involved with the church, I don't think that I'm the only one, but maybe there's some of you that thought, oh, now I'll get it. Now things will get easier. Now everything will start falling into place because, it, you know, God, I'll do something nice for you and then you can do something nice for me. That's how it works, right? I'm going to try really, really hard to be a good person, God, and then you'll bless me and everything will go well and the rain and the storms of my life will stop. But I don't think I'm the only one and maybe you can resonate with this. Following Jesus doesn't make life easier. Following Jesus makes life worth living. Amen? Following Jesus, actually, maybe for some of you, when you first started following Jesus, life didn't get easier. It actually became more difficult. <laughs> well, we can debunk that myth right away. Jesus says himself in Matthew chapter 5, speaking of God, for God gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust 
alike. In other words, God doesn't operate in some sort of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours type of religion. This isn't a nice or naughty list with Santa Claus. This isn't, uh, this isn't uh, what goes around comes around. That's karma. <laughs> you get what you deserve. That's karma. Grace, the gospel says you don't get what you deserve. You get grace because of what Jesus has done on the cross. So let's get our terms right here. Jesus does not exist in that type of religion. He exists in real life, where good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people and everywhere in between. And that's why Jesus definitively says in John chapter 16, let's read it together nice and loud up here on the screen, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. It, can't, it doesn't say it any truer and clearer than that. What does that look like? Well, there's a really good example of this early on in the Gospels. We're in John for the scripture reading, but if you have your Bible or your Bible app today, I would encourage you to find Matthew chapter 8. Matthew and John are both Gospels. They're going to be about the back fourth of your Bible. And they tell the story of Jesus' life here on earth. And you've probably heard of this story before of Matthew chapter 8 of Jesus calming the storm. Well, Jesus and his disciples have got into this boat and suddenly a great storm rises up and it is tossing the boat all about and the disciples think they're going to die and everybody's freaking out except Jesus. What is he doing? He's sleeping. We've covered this before, right? And then we read in verse 26, if you're there in Matthew chapter 8 in verse 26, then Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. I don't know about you, but I'm looking at our world and our nation today, and I'm like, Jesus, can you do that again? Whatever that was, when you stood up in the boat and just like spoke to the weather and it stopped, like if you have that much power, Jesus, why can't you just come and fix it all? <laughs> right? Can Jesus, whatever that was, more of that in 2020 in, in, in our nation, right? We, we need that calm. But the problem is, is that there's a lot more going on in the story here because it would be easy to stop right there and assume, well, you know, as long as Jesus is in your boat, you'll be okay and he'll always calm your storm. The problem is, what happens when Jesus doesn't? Because some of you have been in the boat with Jesus for a long time and that storm has been raging and it hasn't stopped and it's raging today. For some of you, you feel like you've been in the boat and the storm is still going. Financially, things are really tight. I know because some of you have told me, some of you have just recently lost your job. Your marriage is on the rocks. You, you just lost a loved one, possibly to COVID. You're exhausted and you're living in fear of the, the pandemic or the future of our nation. Man, if following Jesus is supposed to make life easier, then we are seriously missing something. But that is not the promise of Christianity. That is not the promise of following Jesus, because there's two facts about this story in Matthew 8 that seem like they should not coexist. <laughs> Number one, the disciples got into the boat with Jesus, and then the storm started. That doesn't fit with our happy-go-lucky rainbows and puppies theology that we like to have about Jesus sometimes. They got into the boat with Jesus, and then the storm started. So what do we learn from that? Two key things. Number one, the presence of God does not equal the absence of a storm. Maybe more importantly, and maybe what some of you need to hear today is this, that the presence of a storm does not equal the absence of God. Some of you have a theology worked up that you believe for most of your life that when things are bad, God is distant. And when things are good, God's present. The Bible actually says the opposite. When things are hardest, 
when you don't think you can make it through another day or another week, when you're crushed in those times in your life as you look back on some of those hardest moments, the Bible says that's actually when God is right there. That he could not be closer, and that's what the disciples experience. No matter what storm you find yourself in, that's the truth for all of us today, including the storm and the chaos of an election. I don't know if you've been following the news, but um, there was a Uh, an election this past week. I don't know if you heard, uh, if you've been following along, but what I noticed, uh, kind of brewing up on social media, I try to pay attention to these things, what people are saying, what they're they're arguing about, and this this phrase, this theme was popping up uh, all over the place, and it was this, no matter who wins, it doesn't matter who wins because God is still on the throne. And for a lot of us, we hear that and we're like, yes, that's it. And that's so true. It's, it's biblical, right? And we take great hope in that. We're comforted, comforted because when we hear that phrase, we hear, oh, there's hope even if things don't go my way. And that is absolutely biblical, right? And yet, there's a lot of people that hear that and say, and, and, and the way that they interpret it is, well, if you just have enough faith, then the results of the election really shouldn't matter. If you just have enough faith, then the, the results of the election should seem trivial to you. But the problem is that, is that is, it's anything but biblical as well because people's lives, people's rights, people's livelihoods, people's core beliefs are greatly affected by the outcome. And these are people that are sitting around you today. There's people in our city and in our neighborhoods. They're people that Jesus dearly loves. And it might just mean that you are blessed and you are privileged to not be affected by the results as much as somebody else. Because the truth is, there are millions of people that are grieving today. They are fearful of the future for a variety of reasons. There's also millions and millions of people in our nation today that are happy, and they're rejoicing, and they're celebrating, and they're driving through your neighborhoods honking their horns at 1130 at night. And all of that, because they're excited, because they feel a sense of relief and hope. There's millions of people in that and, and I want to offer you this challenge, not really from me, but from God's word today, is for you, even if you are convinced that your side, whatever that is, is right, can you see why they or those people on the other side are happy or grieving? Can you, can you take a step back from the bubble that you live in and the, the filter that you see life through and see why they might be feeling that. And this is not my advice to you that I just came up with this weekend. This is straight out of the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 12. He says this. Let's read this nice and loud together. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. If somebody scrolled through your social media feed this last week, would they say, honorable? Would they say that? Notice it doesn't say be happy with those who are happy, weep with those who weep, and agree wholeheartedly with those that disagree with you. No, it doesn't say that. It says live in harmony with each other. I looked up, I did some uh, theological text study this past week. I looked up that word everyone in the original Greek that it was written would be with uh, live in harmony with each other, live in peace with everyone. This word in the Greek did some study there. It, liter- it means this. Everyone. 
I know, right? It literally means everyone. Simon Sinek is an international speaker and author on leadership, and he has you've probably seen him on YouTube, and he's written hundreds of books and coached hundreds and thousands of Fortune 500 CEOs and leaders. I mean, he's the coach to the coaches, to the executive coaches. He's one of the gurus on leadership out there, and he was recently asked in an interview, if you could boil it down, what sets one company apart from another, one culture, one church, one organization, one group, one business, one leader apart from other leaders, what sets the great leaders apart? What is the defining one characteristic that you had to boil it all down of what makes great leaders? Want to take a guess? He said this. Empathy. The ability to feel with another. It says nothing about agreeing. It says nothing about liking it. Can you step out of your shoes and into somebody else's shoes and just feel with them? And if the church is called to lead, then maybe we can learn a lesson about one of the primary characteristics of leadership. Not agree with, not compromising our beliefs, but having the humility to love. And if we don't do that, hear me say this, we become the very thing we hate about the other side. How many of you have fallen into that trap? Oh, I can't stand it when they do this. And then you do something, I think I just did to them what I don't like they do to me. We become the very thing that we can't stand. I love what Pastor Andy Stanley said this past week. This quote from a few days ago, he said this, candidates won or lost this past week by how America voted on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. But get this, but the church will win or lose based on how Christians respond today and tomorrow. That's the deal breaker. The election is not the end of the story, but it matters how we respond to that. The election might be coming to a conclusion, but the mission of this church and of the church continues, and nothing could be more important. And here's why, because a broken and hurting, and I don't know if you saw this, but our nation's a little divided, right? And a divided world is desperate and hungry for a unified church, and that is why we are doing what we are doing starting next week with Hope Elam. In our little corner of the world, we can lead the way and model that. A divided world is hungry for real hope, and his name is Jesus. Amen? That's why we exist. That's why we do what we do. And so what I want to propose to you today is that no matter who you are, the fact that God is on the throne does not have to be a trivial, divisive statement. It can be good news for everybody. And here's why, because we can take great comfort and hope in that. Number one, because we don't worship the, the, the donkey, we don't worship the elephant, we worship the lion of Judah, the king of kings, and the lord of lords, and that should bring us great hope, because he's not going to get tossed out of office anytime soon. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Amen? So that should bring us great hope. And, everybody say and. And that's a really big and. We live in a real world, a broken world where elections matter. Hear me say that. 
And because Jesus is on the throne, that means that the broken and the oppressed and the fearful on both sides of the aisle and everywhere in between, you have an advocate. God says to you today, no matter how you voted, I see you. I hear you. I feel your pain. And I know your fear. He knows you. He grieves with you. He fights for justice with you. And his name is Jesus. And because we follow Jesus and we're a church that bears his name, we are called to do the same. To go to the left out and the forgotten or the unheard and to say to these neighborhoods around us, I see you. You matter to us. And most importantly, you matter to God. If we don't do that... (laughs) It doesn't matter if we're right because we've lost the real battle that matters. When people encounter you, do they leave feeling loved? Saying Jesus is on the throne, is still on the throne, is not an excuse for passivity. In fact, it's quite the opposite. When we hear Jesus is on the throne, that should move us to do two things. Number one, to love people that are hurting today. To move to action It's not, well, Jesus is still on the throne. He's got it, so I'll just sit back and consume church. He's got it. It's all good. He's in control. Quite the opposite. Jesus, would you break my heart for the things that break yours? Oh, wait, that's the thousands of people that live around here in these neighborhoods. And I drive into church every single Sunday. And I am not going to continue to go through the motions just because the election went one way or another, and now I'm good, or now I'm broken, or now I'm going to give up because my side didn't win. The church matters. The mission matters. What we're doing here is not playing a religious game. This matters for eternity. What we're doing matters more than anything else. And the mission continues. Amen? The mission continues. That's why we're here. So we're called to do two things. To love, to move to action, and number two, to trust. Because no matter what 2020 has thrown your way, no matter what you're feeling today, God as any good father, is passionate about your trust. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? I was thinking about that, this story that um, a few of you have maybe heard, but around this time of year, it always makes me uh, think of it. It was the middle uh, to late November, and I was going to the mall with our son, who was about three at the time. This is way back in the day when you went places and touched things. Um, it was amazing. And so we went to, it just gives me the heebie-jeebies right now of going to the mall and playing on the play place. But we did that, uh, and we just, you know, drenched them in sanitizer afterwards. But we did that, and so we went to play for a little bit, and we were walking around the mall, and it was one of those days, like, we've kind of had, where, like, today, it's like, whoa, it's 75 degrees, it feels like summer, but then maybe in a couple days it's going to snow, because that's Iowa, I guess. And so it was one of those days where we went, and we're like, oh, it's good, it's warm. We got out of the car, I remember, we parked the car, I'm like, Caleb, you don't need your coat. And so we just went in with, you know, pants and short sleeves. We went in, we did our thing literally half an hour. We come back out to the parking lot, and what I see is that in the parking lot at Valley West Mall. Great! I am rocking it as a dad. And we're standing there in the vestibule looking at that, and Caleb is like this tall at the time, and he just kind of looks at me with those big eyes, and I go, buddy, where's your coat? Where's my coat? And we kind of look at each other, and I don't know, I don't know how he managed to say this at three, but I remember him saying this, daddy, it's in the car. And I go, awesome, great, it's in the car. And he just looks at me with this face I'll never forget. 
Like that. You're just kind of, ah, what are we going to do? So I'm like, well, buddy, we got to make a run for it. So we're, we're looking out at the parking lot, and I grab him, and I put him in my arms. It's like, well, we're just going to go for it. And so I dart out, and the wind's blowing sideways and down and up and coming up from under, you know, like Forrest Gump, sideways rain, sideways snow, and it was blowing all over the place. And I'm literally running through the parking lot with my son, ah, going like this, and I go down that aisle, like, and I'm hitting the, the buzzer on my car thinking it'll blink, but I can't see it because it's covered in snow. And I go down the next aisle. Ah! I'm carrying my son. Ah! He's screaming in my arms. Where are we going? I can't find it anywhere. I don't know where I parked. I, I literally forgot. And don't say that you haven't done that before, okay? You're in church. Don't lie, okay? I don't know where my car is. So I'm like, I, I can't do this, right? I, I'm freezing. My, my son's, son's going to die of hyperthermia. This is going to be the end. Pastor lost in, in the Valley West parking lot dies holding his son in the snow. I was like, we got to go inside. So we run back in. I've got icicles growing on my beard and my eyelashes and my nostrils and my son is soaked and damp and Caleb is, is in my arms and I set him down in the vestibule. I don't think anybody else is around and these two, these two older ladies are nice, wonderful old ladies there with their shopping bags just looking out, deciding if they should go out and they turn and they look at me with my son and they say, sir, are you okay? Do you need some help? And inside I say, of course I need help! A train wreck of a father. I can't find my car. I can't dress my son properly. But I say, nope, we're great. We're, we're, we're doing just fine. You know, we're getting ready to head out there and give it another shot because I have no idea what I'm doing in my life. So we go and I run out and I just remember as I'm, as I'm running out as a t- torpedo into the snow, I just hear, daddy, as we're going down. And I run down and I run down like, Oh, that's it. About another 15 minutes or so, yeah, we're on the other side of Yonkers. We're on, the, we're on the other parking lot, so no wonder I can't find my car. So we finally get there, and we're running, and, and my son is shivering and screaming, and we finally get to the car, and I am so frustrated with myself and so mad at myself, and I'm putting him in the car seat, and I look him in the eyes as he's shivering, and I go, buddy, do you know, I am, I am so sorry. Do you know that daddy was trying to do everything that I could to get you back to the car? Yeah. And in that moment, it hit me. There's nothing that I long for more as his dad than his trust. I, I look back on that story with fond memories. It's one of my favorite memories with Caleb. He's going to be in counseling for it one day, but I really enjoyed it. There's nothing I long for more than his trust, especially in the middle of a storm. And if I have that level of compassion for my kid, can you imagine the way that God feels about you right now as he's holding you through the storm? Or whatever storm that you've been through. And I, as a father, I believe nothing stirs the affections of our Heavenly Father like one of his sons and daughters saying, I trust you. I really do. I don't, I don't know why we're going through what we're, what we're going through. I don't know why this is happening. But I'm not going to give way to fear. Because what we often forget, and here's the truth, is that God's ability to provide does not depend on my understanding. How? Oh, if we could trust that. Oh, if we could believe that here and not just up here. Because what we do is we say, well, God, my life seems out of control, and I don't know what's going on, and I don't know how I'm going to get from here to, I don't know how we're going to find the car, whatever the car is, to get back home, to get resolution, to get healing, to mend that relationship, to get my marriage back together, my finances, or find a job. I don't know how we're going to get from here to there, and it all seems out of control. 
So God must be out of control. Or maybe today your heavenly father is holding you close and running through the storm and he's saying to you, it might seem all out of control, but I'm not. And by the way, I know exactly where the car is. So the question for us today is not if the storms come, it's when they come, how do we respond? And for a lot of you today, I'm guessing maybe it's not anger that the storm is, it's not that chaos, you're just weary. Is anybody else weary, overwhelmed, and tired? That's your storm. So how do we respond? The question I want to repose for the rest of our time today is how do you care for your soul in a world gone mad? How do you care for your soul in a world gone mad? And the world has a lot of different responses to that. It's just, well, you know, get up in the morning and have a glass half full mentality. You know, just be optimistic. It's the power of positive thinking. Or, well, if life gets hard enough, why don't you just check out? Why don't you just give up? Because it's too hard and the world's falling apart anyway, so why care about it? Well, because Jesus is coming back one day to make all things new, and he cares about it. He cares deeply about our nation, about our world, and about you and the details of your life. The problem is with all those responses that the world gives us is that Jesus didn't do any of them. In fact, he models something very, very different. So if you still have your Bibles or your app, go back to Matthew chapter 8. Jesus models something entirely different, and it looks a little bit more like my son in the Valley West parking lot. Total dependence on the Father. What if Christianity, the message of Christianity, wasn't do? What if it was be? And out of your being, out of your intimacy, your your personal relationship with God flows life. Not try harder. Trust. Trust the love that's already been given to you. So Matthew chapter 8, we think, oh, Jesus, calm the storm. Jesus is all about the the big stories and the headline news and and, and the big miracles and everything like that. The most important part of this story is actually what happened before. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus had been busy long before they got in the boat. Just in chapter 8, Jesus had healed a leper and healed the centurion's servant and healed Peter's mother-in-law and cast out many demons. And because of this, the crowds are gathering. Everybody has needs. And get this, Jesus is probably tired, tanked, exhausted in his humanness, mentally and physically drained. And don't miss this. There was a storm going on in Matthew chapter 8 long before they got in the boat, and it's a storm called life. And we're all living in the middle of it right now. Think about just what Jesus was up against in this chapter. Pain, gossip, constant demands, uncertainty, division among, and hatred among Jews and Gentiles, people oppressed and fearful. Yeah, it's really too bad you know, we can't resonate with that at all. Can't identify with that, right? Maybe today you're weary and you're overwhelmed and you're exhausted. So watch Jesus. I want to encourage you, read what Jesus said in the Gospels. There's red letter Bibles where you can just read the words of Jesus. But in between the red letters, watch how Jesus lived. Don't miss that. What does Jesus do? Spoken of this before, Jesus models something for us called benevolent detachment. Benevolent detachment. Watch what 
Jesus does. He fully engages with the people and the needs around him, and yet he intentionally and regularly disengages for the sake of caring for his soul. Watch this, verse 18 in Matthew chapter 8, if you're following along. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, not before, but when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake, a.k.a. I'm out! Peace out! When life had become overwhelming, when fear and anxiety are creeping in, Jesus just left. Just left. Not once, but again and again. Over and over and over again. If you read the Gospels as a story, which they were meant to be as a narrative, you'll see Jesus went away to a quiet place. Jesus took solitude. Jesus got up before the break of dawn and went off to be with his Father. When things got loud, when things got noisy, when things got busy, when things get chaotic, Jesus left over and over and over again. And the world is screaming at Jesus, do more, pay attention, check your social media feed one more time. And if you don't engage and have a comment on every single post that's out there and and meet everybody's needs and share your opinion on everything, it's FOMO, baby. You're going to miss out, Jesus. See ya. And he just walks away. You can only do that when your identity is rooted in something other than the people around you. Jesus did not have to pander to the crowd because he'd heard the whisper of his father. And you can experience the same. How much of what you do, how much of what you post, how much of what you say, how much of what you believe is based on what everybody else around you is going to think other than the God that created you. Benevolent detachment. He just left. Why benevolent? Because it wasn't passivity. Jesus isn't ignoring the problems around him. Jesus did more in three years than most of us do our entire life, right? It wasn't growing numb to the world. Jesus fully engaged. It was action, as we talked about before. It was love, okay, and then trust. It's not either or, it's both and. So could it be that before Jesus calmed the actual storm, that in Matthew 8 he was modeling for us how to live in the middle of the storm of life? You think the Bible's not relevant? Read between the lines. Watch Jesus. He was modeling for us what it means to be human, to have radical dependence on the Father. So what does that look like? What's a practical example of that? About a year ago, my wife and I went to this conference, and one of the the tools we were introduced to was something called the Pause app. And I've shared about this a little bit before, and some of you have maybe heard this and downloaded this, but I just thought, you know, maybe this is a good week that we could all breathe a little bit. Like, that might be a good thing to do, is to breathe. Do you know there's apps out there that remind you to breathe? Just that fact alone should show you where we're at as a society, okay? That we have to remember, I forgot. I haven't done that for two and a half hours. I should probably breathe, okay? And that's built into this app, but it's, it's, it's from Wild at Heart Ministries, and you can download it right now because I know you all have your phones in your pockets, and you can do that. Uh, and I've spoken of this a few times, and people, people from the church have said, this changed my life. This is amazing. And so I wanted to bring it up uh, again that the idea is simple. It's guided prayer exercises and that you set throughout your day, just little notifications, and there are these videos and these guided prayers that you can do one or three, five or ten minutes as you go and as you develop that to help you throughout your day center yourself on 
God. And I don't know about you, but I need more. The idea here is that it's throughout your day. I need more than a five-minute God time in the morning, okay? I hear people say, oh, do you have your God time? I need more than a 10-minute time of devotions during the day. I need my day saturated with Jesus. Because I don't know about anybody. Anybody have a day like this where you get up, you're like, okay, I'm going to have a great day today. I'm going to have a positive attitude. And you, you get up and your kids are annoying if you've got kids in the house. And you get in an argument with your spouse on the way out the door because that never happens. And then you go to work and your boss says something that frustrates you. And you get an email from a coworker, And somebody, one of your political enemies posts something on Facebook. And it gets you all riled up inside. And you're all thrown off. And now you're lost and confused and frustrated. And it's 930 in the morning. Anybody have a day like that? Or is that just me? Okay. I need regular reminders. I need Jesus all throughout my day. And that's what the pause app is. And my favorite part of the prayer that's a part of that is simply this. Jesus, I give everything and everyone to you. I'm guessing all of you are getting the notifications on your phone. That's what all those noises are. What if you prayed that about 10 times a day? How would it change your life? Jesus, I give everything and everyone to you. And I remember doing this. I said it in the middle of the morning and the middle of the afternoon on purpose. And then I found myself in a meeting or I was frustrated or I just got a really difficult email. I was on the phone with somebody and all of a sudden my phone would go off and I go, well, Jesus, this is super inconvenient. And then I thought, wait a minute, that's actually the point. Jesus, I want you to interrupt my entire day. Because you have something to say about whatever I'm in the middle of right now. And the power is not in the breathing. The power is not in self-reflection. The power is not in an app. The power is in connecting with the living God. We do it with the kids. We started to introduce it to our kids. Our five-year-old, Evie, uh, this is when she was four last year. We started to introduce it, and she loved it to the point where she would ask, can we do the phone prayer, Daddy? Like, God lives in my phone or something like that, I guess. Can we do that? I don't care. It's teaching her how to pray. And we would do it, and this nice, calm music comes on, and then he starts doing this this, uh, guided prayer. And I look over at my four-year-old, and she's going, there's a lot of breathing. She gets that, and the prayer part is coming along as well, but she loves it. And believe it or not, they calm down, and they're different kids afterwards. I think, well, like a four-year-old can do it. Why would I ever say I don't have time to pray? Jesus, interrupt my day. And what we're modeling for our kids, your grandkids, your friends, whatever, what we're modeling for them is that mommy and daddy don't ever have problems or get overwhelmed. What we're modeling them for them is that when we do, we go to Jesus. I know that sounds so simple, but I don't run to the TV. I'm not going to run to social media or whatever else is on my phone. I want to go to Jesus. And the point is, is that at some point you stop using the app because it's who you are. I have trained myself in every moment. Jesus, I give everything and everyone to you because you were not meant, I was not meant to carry the weight of the world on my shoulders. I've talked to so many of you over the last couple months. We've tried to call or connect with as many of you as we can while we've been distant and apart from each other. And what I just hear again and again is, John, I can't take it anymore. I'm so tired of this. And, and, and I just, it's too much. <laughs> and my response has been, you're right. <laughs> you can't take it anymore. And I can't. <laughs> it is too much. 
What if you were never meant to handle it all? I hear people say, well, this is just the way the world is now. Everybody's just on the treadmill of life, and we're all going to be busy and stressed out. Or the worst is, that's just who I am. The problem is, Jesus never did that. And your job is not to be conformed to American culture. Your job is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Amen? Which is not tired and overwhelmed and stressed out and overly busy. Be, not do. What if you were never meant to handle it all? What if we were never meant to have instant access to the pain and the tragedies and the drama of our world at our fingertips? Just because it's available doesn't mean it's the best thing for your soul. There's been some PhD studies that have been done that show the average American checks their phone 87 times a day and that we consume more information in a week than would crash a laptop. Maybe your soul and your brain wasn't meant to handle it all, which is why we pray, Jesus, I give everything and everyone to you. A prayer I I pray a lot and I ask God when things come up, when things come at me, Jesus, is this my battle to fight? More often the response is no, or that little part of it, and I've got it. So give it to me. So John, the answer must be just throw my cell phone away when I get home and shut down my laptop and turn off the news and never be informed or anything like that. That's not what Jesus did either. Instead, he engaged, benevolent detachment. He had action, he loved, he engaged with the world around him, and then trust, deeply engage regularly disengage. Turn off your phone today. Turn off the election news for a little bit and give it to him because it is one thing to be informed and it is entirely another thing to be consumed. And the difference is who gives you your peace? Where do you get your peace? Who determines? Who gets the keys to your peace. And when we get consumed by it, we hand over the keys to our soul. You get to determine the ups and downs of my day rather than the God that created me. So you let go regularly. How do you find life in a world gone mad? Benevolent detachment. And finally, you fight on. You don't give up. You fight on. Perhaps some of you have heard of a TV show called This Is Us. Anybody watch This Is Us? I'm I'm convinced that this show was designed uh, for parents to bawl their eyes out uncontrollably uh, at 8 o'clock on NBC uh, because I stopped watching it because I couldn't handle it emotionally. Um, But it is so good and it is so true and I take it in small doses. And this one episode caught my attention. The character that you see up there on the screen, Randall and his wife, are reflecting on the tragedies of life and how hard it's been, and how much grief and sorrow and, and loss they have, and they're, they're hanging out and they're living with, with their kids, and it's important to know that Randall, when he was young, the dad here, when he was young, was adopted. He never knew his mom. She just left him, gave him to the man that she was with, and then Randall's dad just left him on the doorstep at the fire station. So that's how his story started. How about you? And he's wrestling with that. And his whole story and this whole show is wrestling through those tragedies. His life has been full of painful memory after painful memory. And I think if you'll listen closely, even in the midst of all that, you'll hear the heartbeat of God for you today. Let's take a look. This pain, this chapter of the story is not forever. 
it would be so easy to give up. There's so much sadness. I've never encountered this like this before as a pastor. That's why that prayer matters so much because people come to you and they say, what's the answer? And stand up and be strong. And What do you do as a leader and a, and a pastor when you say, I don't, I don't have the strength to be strong for you right now? Because I'm so sad. <laughs> and there's so much pain, and I, and I feel that. There's so much anger that people have. There's so much disappointment. But it's not about me and my strength. It's not about you and your strength. We fight on. We fight on. Not in our own strength, but because God is doing something beautiful between the tragedies of our life. God is doing something beautiful between those fence posts. So we fight on, not with the power of positive thinking, but with the power of gospel thinking. With the power of the gospel that says Jesus has defeated sin and death. And so the worst thing is never the last thing. The worst thing is never the last thing. Whatever you're up against, Jesus says, this chapter is in this world, you will have trouble. But don't forget the rest of the verse, but take heart, fight on, don't give up, keep running the race because I have overcome the world. And that means a virus is not the end of the story. The results of an election are not the end of the story. Your broken marriage and your relationships are not the end of the story. Your loneliness is not the end of the story. Victory is the end of the story because Jesus always gets the last word and that is where we place our hope because we follow him today. Amen? We have victory in Jesus Christ. We're not just going to talk about it. Let's stand together. Let's worship him and let's sing about the victory that we have in Jesus.